This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray. Book Two The Ranger. Chapter Fifteen. West of the Pecos River, Texas extended a vast wild region, barren in the north where the Llano Estacado spread its shifting sands, fertile in the south along the Rio Grande. A railroad marked an undeviating course across five hundred miles of this country, and the only villages and towns lay on or near this line of steel. Unsettled as was this western Texas, and despite the acknowledged dominance of the outlaw bands, the pioneers pushed steadily into it. First had come the lone rancher, then his neighbors in nearer and far valleys, then the hamlets, at last the railroad and the towns. And still the pioneers came, spreading deeper into the valleys, farther and wider over the plains. It was mesquite-dotted, cactus-covered desert, but rich soil upon which water acted like magic. There was little grass to an acre, but there were millions of acres. The climate was wonderful. Cattle flourished and ranchers prospered. The Rio Grande flowed almost due south along the western boundary for a thousand miles, and then, weary of its course, turned abruptly north to make what was called the Big Bend. The railroad, running west, cut across this bend, and all that country bounded on the north by the railroad and on the south by the river, was as wild as the staked plains. It contained not one settlement. Across the face of this big bend, as if to isolate it, stretched the Ord mountain range, of which Mount Ord, Cathedral Mount, and Elephant Mount raised bleak peaks above their fellows. In the valleys of the foothills and out across the plains were ranches, and farther north villages and the towns of Alpine and Marfa. Like other parts of the great Lone Star State, this section of Texas was a world in itself, a world where the riches of the rancher were ever enriching the outlaw. The village closest to the gateway of this outlaw-infested region was a little place called Ord, named after the dark peak that looms some miles to the south. It had been settled originally by Mexicans. There were still the ruins of adobe missions, but with the advent of the rustler and outlaw many inhabitants were shot or driven away, so that at the height of Ord's prosperity and evil sway there were but few Mexicans living there, and these had their choice between holding hand and glove with the outlaws or furnishing target practice for that wild element. Toward the close of a day in September a stranger rode into Ord, and in a community where all men were remarkable for one reason or another he excited interest. His horse, perhaps, received the first and most engaging attention, horses in that region being apparently more important than men. This particular horse did not attract with beauty. At first glance he seemed ugly. But he was a giant, black as coal rough despite the care manifestly bestowed upon him, long of body, ponderous of limb, huge in every way. A bystander remarked that he had a grand head. 
True, if only his head had been seen, he would have been a beautiful horse. Like men, horses show what they are in the shape, the size, the line, the character of the head. This one denoted fire, speed, blood, loyalty, and his eyes were as soft and dark as a woman's. His face was solid black, except in the middle of his forehead, where there was a round spot of white. "'Say, mister, mind telling me his name?' asked a ragged urchin, with born love of a horse in his eyes. "'Bullet,' replied the rider. "'That there's for the white mark, ain't it?' whispered the youngster to another. "'Say, isn't he a whopper? Biggest hoss I ever seen!' Bullet carried a huge black silver-ornamented saddle of Mexican make, a lariat and canteen, and a small pack rolled into a tarpaulin. This rider apparently put all care of appearances upon his horse. His apparel was the ordinary jeans of the cowboy, without vanity, and it was torn and travel-stained. His boots showed evidence of an intimate acquaintance with cactus. Like his horse, this man was a giant in stature, but rangier, not so heavily built. Otherwise the only striking thing about him was his sombre face with its piercing eyes, and hair white over the temples. He packed two guns, both low down, but that was too common a thing to attract notice in the Big Bend. A close observer, however, would have noted a singular fact. This rider's right hand was more bronzed, more weather-beaten than his left. He never wore a glove on that right hand. He had dismounted before a ramshackle structure that bore upon its wide, high-boarded front the sign, Hotel. There were horsemen coming and going down the wide street between its rows of old stores, saloons, and houses. Ord certainly did not look enterprising. Americans had manifestly assimilated much of the leisure of the Mexicans. The hotel had a wide platform in front, and this did duty as porch and sidewalk. Upon it, and leaning against a hitching rail, were men of varying ages, most of them slovenly in old jeans and slouched sombreros. Some were booted, belted, and spurred. No man there wore a coat, but all wore vests. The guns in that group would have outnumbered the men. It was a crowd seemingly too lazy to be curious. Good nature did not appear to be wanting, but it was not the frank and boisterous kind natural to the cowboy or rancher in town for a day. These men were idlers. What else, perhaps, was easy to conjecture? Certainly to this arriving stranger, who flashed a keen eye over them, they wore an atmosphere never associated with work. Presently a tall man, with a drooping sandy mustache, leisurely detached himself from the crowd. "'Howdy, stranger,' he said. The stranger had bent over to loosen the cinches. He straightened up and nodded. Then, "'I'm thirsty.' That brought a broad smile to faces. It was characteristic greeting. One and all trooped after the stranger into the hotel. It was a dark, ill-smelling barn of a place with a bar as high as a short man's head. A bartender with a scarred face was serving drinks. "'Line up, gents,' said the stranger. 
They piled over one another to get to the bar, with coarse jests and oaths and laughter. None of them noted that the stranger did not appear so thirsty as he had claimed to be. In fact, though he went through the motions, he did not drink at all. "'My name's Jim Fletcher,' said the tall man with the drooping sandy moustache. He spoke laconically. Nevertheless, there was a tone that showed he expected to be known. Something went with that name. The stranger did not appear to be impressed. "'My name might be Blazes, but it ain't,' he replied. "'What do you call this burg?' "'Stranger, this here metropolis bears the handle oared. Is that new to you?' He leaned back against the bar, and now his little yellow eyes, clear as crystal, flawless as a hawk's, fixed on the stranger. Other men crowded close, forming a circle, curious, ready to be friendly, or otherwise, according to how the tall interrogator marked the newcomer. "'Sure, or it's a little strange to me. Off the railroad some, ain't it? Funny trails hereabouts. "'How fur was you goin'?' "'I reckon I was goin' as far as I could,' replied the stranger with a hard laugh. His reply had subtle reaction on that listening circle. Some of the men exchanged glances. Fletcher stroked his drooping moustache, seemed thoughtful, but lost something of that piercing scrutiny. "'Well, Ord's the jumpin' off place,' he said presently. "'Sure you've heard of the Big Bend country?' "'I sure have, and was making tracks for it,' replied the stranger. Fletcher turned toward a man in the outer edge of the group. "'Nell, come in here.' This individual elbowed his way in and was seen to be scarcely more than a boy, almost pale beside these bronzed men, with a long, expressionless face, thin and sharp. "'Nell, this here's—' Fletcher wheeled to the stranger. "'What'd you call yourself?' "'I'd hate to mention what I've been calling myself lately.' This sally fetched another laugh. The stranger appeared cool, careless, indifferent. Perhaps he knew, as the others present knew, that this show of Fletcher's, this pretense of introduction, was merely talk while he was looked over. Nell stepped up, and it was easy to see, from the way Fletcher relinquished his part in the situation, that a man greater than he had appeared upon the scene. "'Any business here?' he queried curtly. When he spoke, his expressionless face was in strange contrast with the ring, the quality, the cruelty of his voice. This voice betrayed an absence of humor, of friendliness, of heart. "'Nope,' replied the stranger. "'Know anybody hereabouts?' "'Nary one.' "'Just riding through?' "'Yep.' "'Sloping for back country, hey?' There came a pause. The stranger appeared to grow a little resentful, and drew himself up disdainfully. "'Well, considering you all seem so damn friendly and uncurious down here in this Big Bang country, I don't mind saying yes, I am in on the dodge,' he replied with deliberate sarcasm. "'From west of Ord, out El Paso way, maybe?' "'Sure.' 
Ah, that's so. Nell's words cut the air, stilled the room. You're from way down the river. That's what they say down there, on the dodge. Stranger, you're a liar. With swift clink of spur and thump of boot the crowd split, leaving Nell and the stranger in the center. Wild breed of that ilk never made a mistake in judging a man's nerve. Nell had cut out with the trenchant call and stood ready. The stranger suddenly lost his every semblance to the rough and easy character before manifest in him. He became bronze. That situation seemed familiar to him. His eyes held a singular piercing light that danced like a compass needle. "'Sure I lied,' he said. "'So I ain't taking offense at the way you called me. I'm looking to make friends, not enemies. You don't strike me as one of them four flushes, aching to kill somebody. But if you are, go ahead and open the ball. You see, I never throw a gun on them fellers till they go for theirs.' Nell coolly eyed his antagonist, his strange face not changing in the least. Yet somehow it was evident in his look that here was metal which rang differently from what he had expected. Invited to start a fight or withdraw, as he chose, Nell proved himself big in the manner characteristic of only the genuine gunman. "'Stranger, I pass,' he said, and turning to the bar he ordered liquor. The tension relaxed. The silence broke. The men filled up the gap. The incident seemed closed. Jim Fletcher attached himself to the stranger, and now both respect and friendliness tempered his asperity. "'Well, for want of a better handle, I'll call you Dodge,' he said. "'Dodge is as good as any. Gents, line up again, and if you can't be friendly, be careful.' Such was Buck Duane's debut in the little outlaw hamlet of Ord. Duane had been three months out of the Nooses country. At El Paso he bought the finest horse he could find, and, armed and otherwise outfitted to suit him, he had taken to unknown trails. Leisurely he rode from town to town, village to village, ranch to ranch, fitting his talk and his occupation to the impression he wanted to make upon different people whom he met. He was, in turn, a cowboy, a rancher, a cattleman, a stock-buyer, a boomer, a land-hunter, and long before he reached the wild and inhospitable Ord he had acted the part of an outlaw, drifting into new territory. He passed on leisurely because he wanted to learn the lay of the country, the location of the villages and ranches, the work, habit, gossip, pleasures and fears of the people with whom he came in contact. The one subject most impelling to him, outlaws, he never mentioned, but by talking all around it, sifting the old ranch and cattle story, he acquired a knowledge calculated to aid his plot. In this game time was of no moment. If necessary he would take years to accomplish his task. The stupendous and perilous nature of it showed in the slow, weary preparation. When he heard Fletcher's name and face Nell, he knew he had reached the place he sought. Ord was a hamlet on the fringe of the grazing country, of doubtful honesty, from which, surely, winding trails led down into that free and never-disturbed paradise of outlaws, the Big Bend. 
Duane made himself agreeable, yet not too much so, to Fletcher and several other men disposed to talk and drink and eat. And then, after having a care for his horse, he rode out of town a couple of miles to a grove he had marked, and there, well hidden, he prepared to spend the night. This proceeding served a double purpose. He was safer, and the habit would look well in the eyes of outlaws, who would be more inclined to see in him the lone wolf fugitive. Long since Duane had fought out a battle with himself, won a hard-earned victory. His outer life, the action, was much the same as it had been. But the inner life had tremendously changed. He could never become a happy man, he could never shake utterly those haunting phantoms that had once been his despair and madness, but he had assumed a task impossible for any man save one like him. He had felt the meaning of it grow strangely and wonderfully, and through that flourished up consciousness of how passionately he now clung to this thing which would blot out his former infamy. The iron fetters no more threatened his hands. The iron door no more haunted his dreams. He never forgot that he was free. Strangely, too, along with this feeling of new manhood, there gathered the force of imperious desire to run these chief outlaws to their dooms. He never called them outlaws, but rustlers, thieves, robbers, murderers, criminals. He sensed the growth of a relentless driving passion, and sometimes he feared that, more than the newly acquired zeal and pride in this ranger service, it was the old, terrible, inherited killing instinct lifting its hydra head in new guise. But of that he could not be sure. He dreaded the thought. He could only wait. Another aspect of the change in Duane, neither passionate nor driving, yet not improbably even more potent of new significance to life, was the imperceptible return of an old love of nature dead during his outlaw days. For years a horse had been only a machine of locomotion, to carry him from place to place, to beat and spur and goad mercilessly in flight. Now this giant black, with his splendid head, was a companion, a friend, a brother, a love-thing, guarded jealously, fed and trained and ridden with an intense appreciation of his great speed and endurance. For years the daytime, with its birth of sunrise on through long hours to the ruddy close, had been used for sleep or rest in some rocky hole or willow-break or deserted hut, had been hated because it augmented danger of pursuit, because it drove the fugitive to lonely wretched hiding. Now the dawn was a greeting a promise of another day to ride, to plan, to remember, and sun, wind, cloud, rain, sky, all were joys to him, somehow speaking his freedom. For years the night had been a black space, during which he had to ride unseen along the endless trails, to peer with cat-eyes through gloom for the moving shape that ever pursued him. Now the twilight and the dusk and the shadows of grove and canyon darkened into night with its train of stars, and brought him calm reflection of the day's happenings, of the morrow's possibilities, perhaps a sad, brief procession of the old phantoms, then sleep. 
For years, canyons and valleys and mountains had been looked at as retreats that might be dark and wild enough to hide even an outlaw. Now he saw these features of the great desert with something of the eyes of the boy who had once burned for adventure and life among them. This night a wonderful afterglow lingered along in the west, and against the golden red of clear sky the bold black head of Mount Ord reared itself aloft, beautiful but aloof, sinister yet calling. Small wonder that Duane gazed in fascination upon the peak. Somewhere deep in its corrugated sides, or lost in a rugged canyon, was hidden the secret stronghold of the master outlaw, Cheseldine. All down along the ride from El Paso, Duane had heard of Cheseldine, of his band, his fearful deeds, his cunning, his widely separated raids, of his flitting here and there like a jack-o'-lantern. But never a word of his den, never a word of his appearance. Next morning Duane did not return to Ord. He struck off to the north, riding down a rough, slow-descending road that appeared to have been used occasionally for cattle-driving. As he had ridden in from the west, this northern direction led him into totally unfamiliar country. While he passed on, however, he exercised such keen observation that in the future he would know whatever might be of service to him if he chanced that way again. The rough, wild, brush-covered slope down from the foothills gradually leveled out into plain, a magnificent grazing country, upon which till noon of that day Duane did not see a herd of cattle or a ranch. About that time he made out smoke from the railroad, and after a couple of hours' riding he entered a town which inquiry discovered to be Bradford. It was the largest town he had visited since Marfa and he calculated must have a thousand or fifteen hundred inhabitants, not including Mexicans. He decided this would be a good place for him to hold up for a while, being the nearest town to Ord, only forty miles away. So he hitched his horse in front of a store and leisurely set about studying Brantford. It was after dark, however, that Duane verified his suspicions concerning Bradford. The town was awake after dark and there was one long row of saloons, dance-halls, gambling resorts in full blast. Duane visited them all, and was surprised to see wildness and license equal to that of the old river camp of Bland's in its palmiest days. Here it was forced upon him that the farther west one travelled along the river, the sparser the respectable settlements, the more numerous the hard characters, and in consequence the greater the element of lawlessness. Twain returned to his lodging-house with the conviction that McNelly's task of cleaning up the Big Bend country was a stupendous one. Yet, he reflected, a company of intrepid and quick-shooting rangers could have soon cleaned up this Bradford. The innkeeper had one other guest that night, a long, black-coated and wide-sombreroed Texan, who reminded Duane of his grandfather. This man had penetrating eyes, a courtly manner, and an unmistakable leaning toward companionship in mint juleps. The gentleman introduced himself as Colonel Webb, of Marfa, and took it as a matter of course that Duane made no comment about himself. "'Sir, it's all one to me,' he said, blandly waving his hand. "'I have travelled. 
Texas is free, and this frontier is one where it's healthier and just as friendly for a man to have no curiosity about his companion. You might be Chesseldine of the Big Bend, or you might be Judge Little of El Paso. It's all one to me. I enjoy drinking with you anyway. Duane thanked him, conscious of a reserve and dignity that he could not have felt or pretended three months before. And then, as always, he was a good listener. Colonel Webb told, among other things, that he had come out to the Big Bend to look over the affairs of a deceased brother who had been a rancher and a sheriff of one of the towns, Fairdale by name. "'Found no affairs, no ranch, not even his grave,' said Colonel Webb. "'And I tell you, sir, if hell's any tougher than this Fairdale, I don't want to expiate my sins there.' "'Fairdale. I imagine sheriffs have a hard row to hoe out there,' replied Duane, trying not to appear curious. The Colonel swore lustily. My brother was the only honest sheriff Fairdale ever had. It was wonderful how long he lasted. But he had nerve. He could throw a gun, and he was on the square. Then he was wise enough to confine his work to offenders of his own town and neighborhood. He let the riding outlaws alone, else he wouldn't have lasted at all. What this frontier needs, sir, is about six companies of Texas Rangers. Duane was aware of the colonel's close scrutiny. "'Do you know anything about the service?' he asked. "'I used to, ten years ago, when I lived in San Antonio. A fine body of men, sir, and the salvation of Texas.' "'Governor Stone doesn't entertain that opinion,' said Duane. Here Colonel Webb exploded. Manifestly the governor was not his choice for a chief executive of the great state. He talked politics for a while, and of the vast territory west of the Pecos that seemed never to get a benefit from Austin. He talked enough for Duane to realize that here was just the kind of intelligent, well-informed, honest citizen that he had been trying to meet. He exerted himself thereafter to be agreeable and interesting, and he saw presently that here was an opportunity to make a valuable acquaintance, if not a friend. "'I'm a stranger in these parts,' said Duane, finally. "'What is this outlaw situation you speak of?' "'It's damnable, sir, and unbelievable. Not rustling any more, but just wholesale herd-stealing, in which some big cattlemen, supposed to be honest, are equally guilty with the outlaws.' On this border, you know, the rustler has always been able to steal cattle in any numbers. But to get rid of big bunches, that's the hard job. The gang operating between here and Valentine evidently have not this trouble. Nobody knows where the stolen stock goes. But I'm not alone in my opinion that most of it goes to several big stockmen. They ship to San Antonio, Austin, New Orleans, also to El Paso. If you travel the stock road between here and Marfa and Valentine, you'll see dead cattle all along the line, and stray cattle out in the scrub. The herds have been driven fast and far, and stragglers are not rounded up. Wholesale business, eh? remarked Duane. Who are these uh, 
big stock-buyers. Colonel Webb seemed a little startled at the abrupt query. He bent his penetrating gaze upon Duane and thoughtfully stroked his pointed beard. "'Names, of course, I'll not mention. Opinions are one thing, direct accusation another. This is not a healthy country for the informer.' When it came to the outlaws themselves, Colonel Webb was disposed to talk freely. Duane could not judge whether the colonel had a hobby of that subject, or the outlaws were so striking in personality indeed that any man would know all about them. The great name along the river was Cheseldine, but it seemed to be a name detached from an individual. No person of veracity known to Colonel Webb had ever seen Cheseldine, and those that claimed that doubtful honor varied so diversely in descriptions of the chief that they confused the reality and lent to the outlaw only further mystery. Strange to say of an outlaw leader, as there was no one who could identify him, so there was no one who could prove he had actually killed a man. Blood flowed like water over the Big Ben country, and it was Cheseldine who spilled it. Yet the fact remained there were no eyewitnesses to connect any individual called Cheseldine with these deeds of violence. But in striking contrast to this mystery was the person, character, and cold-blooded action of Poggin and Nell, the chief's lieutenants. They were familiar figures in all the towns within two hundred miles of Bradford. Nell had a record, but as a gunman with an incredible list of victims, Poggin was supreme. If Poggin had a friend, no one ever heard of him. There were a hundred stories of his nerve, his wonderful speed with a gun, his passion for gambling, his love of a horse, his cold, implacable, inhuman wiping out of his path any man that crossed it. "'Jesseldine is a name, a terrible name,' said Colonel Webb. "'Sometimes I wonder if he's not only a name. In that case, where does the brains of this gang come from? No, there must be a master craftsman behind this border pillage, a master capable of handling those terrors, Poggin and Nell. Of all the thousands of outlaws developed by western Texas in the last twenty years, these three are the greatest. In southern Texas, down between the Pecos and the Nusis, there have been and are still many bad men. But I doubt if any outlaw there, possibly excepting Buck Duane, ever equaled Poggin. You heard of this Duane? "'Yes, a little,' replied Duane quietly. "'I'm from southern Texas. Buck Duane, then, is known out here?' "'Why, man, where isn't his name known?' replied Colonel Webb. "'I've kept track of his record as I have all the others. Of course, Duane, being a lone outlaw, is somewhat of a mystery also, but not like Jesseldine. Out here there have drifted many stories of Duane, horrible, some of them, but despite them a sort of romance clings to that Nusi's outlaw. He's killed three great outlaw leaders, I believe. Bland, Hardin, and the other I forgot. Hardin was known in the Big Ben, had friends there. Bland had a hard name at Del Rio. Then this man, Duane, enjoys rather an unusual repute west of the Pecos, inquired Duane. He's considered more of an enemy to his kind than to honest men. 
I understand Duane had many friends. That whole county swear by him. Secretly, of course, for he's a hunted outlaw with rewards on his head. His fame in this country appears to hang on his matchless gunplay and his enmity toward outlaw chiefs. I've heard many a rancher say, I wish to God that Buck Duane would drift out here. I'd give a hundred pesos to see him and Poggin meet. It's a singular thing, stranger, how jealous these great outlaws are of each other. Yes, indeed, all about them is singular, replied Duane. Has Cheseldine's gang been busy lately? No, this section has been free of wrestling for months, though there's unexplained movements of stock. Probably all the stock that's being shipped now was rustled long ago. Cheseldine works over a wide section, too wide for news to travel inside of weeks. Then sometimes he's not heard of at all for a spell. These lulls are pretty surely indicative of a big storm sooner or later. And Cheseldine's deals, as they grow fewer and farther between, certainly get bigger, more daring. There are some people who think Cheseldine had nothing to do with the bank robberies and train hold-ups during the last few years in this country. But that's poor reasoning. The jobs have been too well done, too surely covered, to be the work of greasers or ordinary outlaws. What's your view of the outlook? How's all this going to wind up? Will the outlaw ever be driven out? asked Duane. Never. There will always be outlaws along the Rio Grande. All the armies in the world couldn't comb the wild breaks of that fifteen hundred miles of river. But the sway of the outlaw, such as is enjoyed by these great leaders, will sooner or later be passed. The criminal element flock to the southwest, but not so thick and fast as the pioneers. Besides, the outlaws kill themselves, and the ranchers are slowly rising in wrath, if not in action. That will come soon. If they only had a leader to start the fight. But that will come. There's talk of vigilantes, the same that were organized in California and are now in force in Idaho. So far, it's only talk. But the time will come, and days of Cheseldine and Poggin are numbered. Duane went to bed that night exceedingly thoughtful. The long trail was growing hot. This voluble colonel had given him new ideas. It came to Duane in surprise that he was famous along the upper Rio Grande. Assuredly he would not long be able to conceal his identity. He had no doubt that he would soon meet the chiefs of this clever and bold rustling gang. He could not decide whether he would be safer unknown or known. In the latter case, his one chance lay in the fatality connected with his name, in his power to look it and act it. Duane had never dreamed of any sleuth-hound tendency in his nature, but now he felt something like one. Above all others his mind fixed on Poggin, Poggin the Brute, the executor of Cheseldine's will, but mostly upon Poggin the gunman. This in itself was a warning to Duane. He felt terrible forces at work within him. There was the stern and indomitable resolve to make McNelly's boast good to the governor of the state, to break up Cheseldine's gang. 
yet this was not in Duane's mind before a strange grim and deadly instinct, which he had to drive away for fear he would find in it a passion to kill Poggin, not for the state, nor for his word to McNelly, but for himself. Had his father's blood and the hard years made Duane the kind of man who instinctively wanted to meet Poggin? He was sworn to McNelly's service, and he fought himself to keep that, and that only, in his mind. Duane ascertained that Fairdale was situated two days' ride from Bradford toward the north. There was a stage which made the journey twice a week. Next morning Duane mounted his horse and headed for Fairdale. He rode leisurely, as he wanted to learn all he could about the country. There were few ranches. The farther he travelled, the better grazing he encountered, and, strange to note, the fewer herds of cattle. It was just sunset when he made out a cluster of adobe houses that marked the halfway point between Bradford and Fairdale. Here, Duane had learned, was stationed a comfortable inn for wayfarers. When he drew up before the inn, the landlord and his family, and a number of loungers, greeted him laconically. "'Beat the stage in, hey?' remarked one. "'There she comes now,' said another. "'Joel sure is driving to-night.' Far down the road Duane saw a cloud of dust and horses and a lumbering coach. When he had looked after the needs of his horse, he returned to the group before the inn. They awaited the stage with that interest common to isolated people. Presently it rolled up, a large mud-bespattered and dusty vehicle, littered with baggage on top and tied on behind. A number of passengers alighted, three of whom excited Duane's interest. One was a tall, dark, striking-looking man, and the other two were ladies, wearing long gray ulsters and veils. Duane heard the proprietor of the inn address the man as Colonel Longstreth, and as the party entered the inn, Duane's quick ears caught a few words which acquainted him with the fact that Longstreth was the mayor of Fairdale. Duane passed inside himself to learn that supper would soon be ready. At table he found himself opposite the three who had attracted his attention. "'Ruth, I envy the lucky cowboys,' Longstreth was saying. Ruth was a curly-headed girl with gray or hazel eyes. "'I'm crazy to ride broncos,' she said. Duane gathered she was on a visit to western Texas. The other girl's deep voice, sweet like a bell, made Duane regard her closer. She had beauty as he had never seen it in another woman. She was slender, but the development of her figure gave Duane the impression she was twenty years old or more. She had the most exquisite hands Duane had ever seen. She did not resemble the colonel, who was evidently her father. She looked tired, quiet, even melancholy. A finely chiseled oval face, clear, olive-tinted skin, long eyes set wide apart and black as coal, beautiful to look into, a slender, straight nose that had something nervous and delicate about it, which made Duane think of a thoroughbred, and a mouth by no means small, but perfectly curved, and hair like jet. All these features proclaimed her beauty to Duane. Duane believed her a descendant of one of the old French families of eastern Texas. He was sure of it when she looked at him, drawn by his rather persistent gaze. There were pride, fire, and passion in her eyes. 
Duane felt himself blushing in confusion. His stare at her had been rude, perhaps, but unconscious. How many years had passed since he had seen a girl like her? Thereafter he kept his eyes upon his plate, yet he seemed to be aware that he had aroused the interest of both girls. After supper the guests assembled in a big sitting-room where an open fireplace with blazing mesquite sticks gave out warmth and cheery glow. Duane took a seat by a table in the corner, and, finding a paper, began to read. Presently, when he glanced up, he saw two dark-faced men, strangers who had not appeared before, and were peering in from a doorway. When they saw Duane had observed them, they stepped back out of sight. It flashed over Duane that the strangers acted suspiciously. In Texas in the seventies it was always bad policy to let strangers go unheeded. Duane pondered a moment. Then he went out to look over these two men. The doorway opened into a patio, and across that was a little dingy, dim-lighted bar-room. Here Duane found the innkeeper dispensing drinks to the two strangers. They glanced up when he entered, and one of them whispered. He imagined he had seen one of them before. In Texas, where outdoor men were so rough, bronzed, bold, and sometimes grim of aspect, it was no easy task to pick out the crooked ones. But Duane's ears on the border had augmented a natural instinct or gift to read character, or at least to sense the evil in men, and he knew at once that these strangers were dishonest. "'Hey, something,' one of them asked, leering. Both looked Duane up and down. "'No, thanks. I don't drink,' Duane replied, and returned their scrutiny with interest. "'How's tricks in the Big Bend?' Both men stared. It had taken only a close glance for Duane to recognize a type of ruffian most frequently met along the river. These strangers had that stamp, and their surprise proved he was right. Here the innkeeper showed signs of uneasiness, and seconded the surprise of his customers. No more was said at the instant, and the two rather hurriedly went out. "'Say, boss, do you know those fellows?' Duane asked the innkeeper. Nope. Which way did they come? Now I think of it, them fellers rid in from both corners today, he replied, and he put both hands on the bar and looked at Duane. They nooned here, coming from Bradford, they said, and trailed in after the stage. When Duane returned to the sitting room, Colonel Longstreth was absent, also several of the other passengers. Miss Ruth sat in the chair he had vacated and across the table from her sat Miss Longstreth. Duane went directly to them. "'Excuse me,' said Duane, addressing them. "'I want to tell you there are a couple of rough-looking men here. I've just seen them. They mean evil. Tell your father to be careful. Lock your doors. Bar your windows to-night.' "'Oh!' cried Ruth, very low. "'Ray, do you hear?' "'Thank you. We'll be careful,' said Miss Longstreth, gracefully. The rich color had faded in her cheek. "'I saw those men watching you from that door. They had such bright black eyes. Is there really danger here?' "'I think so,' was Duane's reply. Soft, swift steps behind him preceded a harsh voice. "'Hands up!' 
no man quicker than Duane to recognize the intent in those words. His hands shot up. Miss Ruth uttered a little frightened cry and sank into her chair. Miss Longstreth turned white, her eyes dilated. Both girls were staring at someone behind Duane. "'Turn around!' ordered the harsh voice. The big, dark stranger, the bearded one who had whispered to his comrade in the bar-room and asked Duane to drink, had him covered with a cocked gun. He strode forward, his eyes gleaming, pressed the gun against him, and with his other hand dove into his inside coat-pocket and tore out his roll of bills. Then he reached low at Duane's hip, felt his gun, and took it. Then he slapped the other hip, evidently in search of another weapon. That done, he backed away, wearing an expression of fiendish satisfaction that made Duane think he was only a common thief, a novice at this kind of game. His comrade stood in the door with a gun leveled at two other men, who stood there frightened, speechless. "'Get a move on, Bill,' called this fellow, and he took a hasty glance backward. A stamp of hoofs came from outside. Of course the robbers had horses waiting. The one called Bill strode across the room, and with brutal, careless haste began to prod the two men with his weapon and to search them. The robber in the doorway called, Russell, and disappeared. Duane wondered where the innkeeper was, and Colonel Longstreth and the other two passengers. The bearded robber quickly got through with his searching, and from his growls Duane gathered he had not been well remunerated. Then he wheeled once more. Duane had not moved a muscle, stood perfectly calm with his arms high. The robber strode back with his bloodshot eyes fastened upon the girls. Miss Longstreth never flinched, but the little girl appeared about to faint. "'Don't yap there,' he said, low and hard. He thrust the gun close to Ruth. Then Duane knew for sure that he was no knight of the road, but a plain cutthroat robber. Danger always made Duane exult in a kind of cold glow. But now something hot worked within him. He had a little gun in his pocket. The robber had missed it and he began to calculate chances. "'Any money, jewelry, diamonds?' ordered the ruffian fiercely. Miss Ruth collapsed. Then he made at Miss Longstreth. She stood with her hands at her breast. Evidently the robber took this position to mean that she had valuables concealed there. But Duane fancied she had instinctively pressed her hands against a throbbing heart. "'Come out with it,' he said, harshly, reaching for her. "'Don't dare touch me!' she cried, her eyes ablaze. She did not move. She had nerve. It made Duane thrill. He saw he was going to get a chance. Waiting had been a science with him, but here it was hard. Miss Ruth had fainted, and that was well. Miss Longstreth had fight in her, which fact helped Duane, yet made injury possible to her. She eluded two lunges the man made at her. Then his rough hand caught her waist, and with one pull ripped it asunder, exposing her beautiful shoulder, white as snow. She cried out. The prospect of being robbed or even killed had not shaken Miss Longstreth's nerve as had this brutal tearing off of half her waist. The ruffian was only turned partially away from Duane. For himself he could have waited no longer, but for her that gun was still held dangerously upward close to her. Duane watched only that. Then a bellow made him jerk his head. 
Colonel Longstreth stood in the doorway in a magnificent rage. He had no weapon. Strange how he showed no fear. He bellowed something again. Duane's shifting glance caught the robber's sudden movement. It was a kind of start. He seemed stricken. Duane expected him to shoot Longstreth. Instead, the hand that clutched Miss Longstreth's torn waist loosened its hold. The other hand, with its cocked weapon, slowly dropped, till it pointed to the floor. That was Duane's chance. Swift as a flash, he drew his gun and fired. Thud! went his bullet, and he could not tell on the instant whether it hit the robber or went into the ceiling. Then the robber's gun boomed harmlessly. He fell with blood spurting over his face. Duane realized he had hit him, but the small bullet had glanced. Miss Longstreth reeled and might have fallen had Duane not supported her. It was only a few steps to a couch, to which he half led, half carried her. Then he rushed out of the room, across the patio, through the bar, to the yard. Nevertheless he was cautious. In the gloom stood a saddled horse, probably the one belonging to the fellow he had shot. His comrade had escaped. Returning to the sitting-room, Duane found a condition approaching pandemonium. The innkeeper rushed in, pitchfork in hands. Evidently he had been out at the barn. He was now shouting to find out what had happened. Joel, the stage-driver, was trying to quiet the men who had been robbed. The woman, wife of one of the men, had come in, and she had hysterics. The girls were still and white. The robber Bill lay where he had fallen, and Duane guessed he had made a fair shot after all. And lastly, the thing that struck Duane most of all was Longstreth's rage. He never saw such passion. Like a caged lion, Longstreth stalked and roared. Then came a quieter moment in which the innkeeper shrilly protested. "'Man, what are you raving about? Nobody's hurt, and that's lucky. I swear to God I had nothing to do with them fellers.' "'I ought to kill you anyhow,' replied Longstreth, and his voice now astounded Duane. It was so full of power. Upon examination Duane found that his bullet had furrowed the robber's temple, torn a great piece out of his scalp, and, as Duane had guessed, had glanced. He was not seriously injured, and already shown signs of returning consciousness. "'Drag him out of here,' ordered Longstreth, and he turned to his daughter." Before the innkeeper reached the robber, Duane had secured the money and gun taken from him, and presently recovered the property of the other men. Joel helped the innkeeper carry the injured man somewhere outside. Miss Longstreth was sitting white but composed upon the couch, where lay Miss Ruth, who evidently had been carried there by the colonel. Duane did not think she had wholly lost consciousness, and now she lay very still, with eyes dark and shadowy her face pallid and wet. The colonel, now that he finally remembered his womenfolk, seemed to be gentle and kind. He talked soothingly to Miss Ruth, made light of the adventure, said she must learn to have nerve out here where things happened. "'Can I be of any service?' asked Duane solicitously. "'Thanks. I guess there's nothing you can do. Talk to these frightened girls while I go see what's to be done with that thick-skulled robber.' he replied, and telling the girls that there was no more danger, he went out. Miss Longstreth sat with one hand holding her torn waist in place, the other she extended to Duane. He took it awkwardly, 
and he felt a strange thrill. "'You saved my life,' she said in grave, sweet seriousness. "'No, no,' Duane exclaimed. "'He might have struck you, hurt you, but no more.' "'I saw murder in his eyes. He thought I had jewels under my dress. I couldn't bear his touch. The beast I'd have fought. Surely my life was in peril.' "'Did you kill him?' asked Miss Ruth, who lay listening. "'Oh, no, he's not badly hurt.' "'I'm very glad he's alive,' said Miss Longstreth, shuddering. "'My intention was bad enough,' Duane went on. "'It was a ticklish place for me. You see, he was half drunk, and I was afraid his gun might go off. Fool careless he was.' "'Yet you say you didn't save me.' Miss Longstreth returned quickly. "'Well, let it go at that,' Duane responded. "'I saved you something.' "'Tell me all about it?' asked Miss Ruth, who was fast recovering. Rather embarrassed, Duane briefly told the incident from his point of view. "'Then you stood there all the time with your hands up thinking of nothing, watching for nothing except the little moment when you might draw your gun?' asked Miss Ruth. "'I guess that's about it,' he replied. "'Cousin,' said Miss Longstreth thoughtfully, "'it was fortunate for us that this gentleman happened to be here. Papa scouts, laughs at danger. He seems to think there was no danger, yet he raved after it came.' "'Go with us all the way to Fairdale, please?' asked Miss Ruth, sweetly offering her hand. "'I am Ruth Herbert.' "'And this is my cousin, Ray Longstreth.' "'I'm travelling that way,' replied Duane in great confusion. He did not know how to meet the situation. Colonel Longstreth returned then, and after bidding Duane a good night, which seemed rather curt by contrast to the graciousness of the girls, he led them away. Before going to bed, Duane went outside to take a look at the injured robber, and perhaps to ask him a few questions. To Duane's surprise he was gone, and so was his horse. The innkeeper was dumbfounded. He said that he left the fellow on the floor in the bard-room. "'Had he come to?' inquired Duane. "'Sure,' he asked, for whiskey. "'Did he say anything else?' "'Not to me. I heard him talking to the father of them girls.' "'You mean Colonel Longstreth?' "'I reckon.' He sure was some riled, wasn't he? Just as if I was to blame for that too bit of a hold-up. "'What did you make of the old gent's rage?' asked Duane, watching the innkeeper. He scratched his head dubiously. He was sincere, and Duane believed in his honesty. "'Well, I'm doggone if I know what to make of it. But I reckon he's either crazy or got more nerve than most Texans.' "'More nerve, maybe.' Duane replied. "'Show me a bed now, innkeeper.' Once in bed in the dark, Duane composed himself to think over the several events of the evening. He called up the details of the hold-up and carefully revolved them in mind. The Colonel's wrath, under circumstances where almost any Texan would have been cool, nonplussed Duane, and he put it down to a choleric temperament. He pondered long on the action of the robber, when Longstreth's bellow of rage burst in upon him. 
This ruffian, as bold and mean a type as Duane had ever encountered, had, from some cause or other, been startled. From whatever point Duane viewed the man's strange indecision, he could come to only one conclusion. His start, his check, his fear had been that of recognition. Duane compared this effect with the suddenly acquired sense he had gotten of Colonel Longstreth's powerful personality. Why had that desperate robber lowered his gun and stood paralyzed at sight and sound of the mayor of Fairdale? This was not answerable. There might have been a number of reasons, all to Colonel Longstreth's credit, but Duane could not understand. Longstreth had not appeared to see danger for his daughter, even though she had been roughly handled, and had advanced in front of a cocked gun. Duane probed deep into this singular fact, and he brought to bear on the thing all his knowledge and experience of violent Texas life, and he found that the instant Colonel Longstreth had appeared on the scene there was no further danger threatening his daughter. Why? That, likewise, Duane could not answer. Then his rage, Duane concluded, had been solely at the idea of his daughter being assaulted by a robber. This deduction was indeed a thought-disturber, but Duane put it aside to crystallize and for more careful consideration. Next morning Duane found that the little town was called Sanderson. It was larger than he had first supposed. He walked up the main street and back again. Just as he arrived, some horsemen rode up to the inn and dismounted, and at this juncture the Longstreth party came out. Duane heard Colonel Longstreth utter an exclamation. Then he saw him shake hands with a tall man. Longstreth looked surprised and angry, and he spoke with force. But Duane could not hear what it was he said. The fellow laughed, yet somehow he struck Duane as sullen, until suddenly he espied Miss Longstreth. Then his face changed, and he removed his sombrero. Duane went closer. "'Floyd, did you come with the teams?' asked Longstreth sharply. "'Not me. I rode a horse good and hard,' was the reply. "'Huh. I have a word to say to you later.' Then Longstreth turned to his daughter. "'Ray, here's the cousin I've told you about. You used to play with him ten years ago. Floyd Lawson. Floyd, my daughter, and my niece, Ruth Herbert.' Duane always scrutinized every one he met, and now, with a dangerous game to play, with the consciousness of Longstreth's unusual and significant personality, he bent a keen and searching glance upon this Floyd Lawson. He was under thirty, yet gray at his temples, dark, smooth-shaven, with lines left by wildness, dissipation, shadows under dark eyes, a mouth strong and bitter and a square chin, a reckless, careless, handsome, sinister face strangely losing the hardness when he smiled. The grace of a gentleman clung around him, seemed like an echo in his mellow voice. Twain doubted not that he, like many a young man, had drifted out to the frontier, where rough and wild life had wrought sternly, but had not quite effaced the mark of good family. Colonel Longstreth apparently did not share the pleasure of his daughter and his niece in the advent of this cousin. Something hinged on this meeting. Duane grew intensely curious, but, as the stage appeared ready for the journey, he had no further opportunity to gratify it. 
chapter.